tonight, you can open them to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. I just want to read a few verses to you. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk, of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. So, Father, we thank you for this word tonight. I thank you that it's going to be alive, it's going to be living and active in the people's lives, it's not going to return void, it's going to go forth and prosper for the very thing you sent it to do. Lord, I'm asking you that you would keep a lock over my lips, that you would let me say only what the Father tells me to say, that I would hear clearly, and Lord, that you would guide and direct this teaching and, and direct your people, Lord, into all truth. I pray for a spirit of wisdom and of revelation to rest on this place. Hover over each life, Lord God, and bring revelation even as I teach, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, where's Leah? Leah, can you just put up your hand real quickly? Um, I, I want to tell you that I was playing pickleball with Leah's husband, Larry, yesterday. I, I don't know how many of you know Larry, but he is a great capital G-R-E-A-T, great pickleball player. And in fact, he never loses. I've never been with him that he's lost. And uh, I, I love playing with him because of the example uh, that he sets. He's a good teacher. In fact, he, he taught our whole church pickleball group how to play pickleball. And I learn just watching him. In fact, one of the games yesterday, he said, Rhea, come in and play. And I said, no, I'm just going to sit here and watch you because I learn watching you. And, um, but I'm going to be honest with you. I don't always like playing with him because he's so good that I get intimidated by his skill. And, and once I get intimidated, it's a downhill spiral for me. Intrusive thoughts about my ability to play begin to take over, and I end up making one mistake after another. And when I start making mistakes, that makes me try even harder, and then I get tense and uptight, and that just makes me make even more mistakes. And and, and I had that kind of game yesterday playing with Larry. Now, you need to know I'm not a bad pickleball player. In fact, I'm, I'm an okay pickleball player. But uh, if I make one mistake, it becomes a downhill spiral. It, it, it got in my head. That's what happened yesterday. I made a mistake, and it got in my head. And, and, and I could have chosen to give myself grace and laughed it off. Leslie does that. But, but I didn't. I just continued to make one mistake after another. And my mood went from pure joy, because I love playing, and excitement, to absolute defeat and utter failure. And, and I kept thinking to myself, in fact, I kept saying it over and in my head, you know, what is wrong with you, Rhea? You're better than this. And there was no grace at all. 
I just need to tell you. And it wasn't because there wasn't grace from the other players. It was me and the, the, the message that was going on in my head. And, and I, I was frustrated. And, every, and in my mind, I was thinking that everybody thought I was a complete failure. <laughs> you need to know that I love playing pickleball. It brings me life. It's one of the few things that I do outside of the Word of God that I can say brings me life. But yesterday, the life I normally feel playing pickleball quickly dissipated and became absolute drudgery. I hated it. And, and apparently, my frustration must have been evident because Larry gently pulled me aside at the baseline. And he said, Rhea, you are a really good player. Relax. And he said, play confident. He said, play like you're confident. And then he chuckled and he whispered and he said, we are not going to lose. Don't worry. And somehow that freed me. And, and, and I, I just need to tell you that we won that game and, and we won every game we played after that. And as I watched him play, what I saw was somebody who was confident. He played like he knew he was going to win. And everyone who played with him knew it. He clearly enjoyed what he was doing, and, and he made it look easy. And everyone who plays with him, I'm just going to tell you, is a better player because of the example that he sets and the way he teaches just by the way he, he plays the game. I was studying this passage when all that happened yesterday. You see, what, what I didn't read you is what came before in this passage. Paul, of course, you, you know he's a proponent that, that he says you've been saved by grace and not by faith, not by works. By, you've been saved by grace through faith and not by works so that no man can boast. And, and he's talking to the Philippians in this chapter, and he says to them, you, you know, he, he starts by commending them for starting out strong and, and going on so, so just doing a good job. <laughs> and then he says, I'm a little worried about you because that there are false teachers that have slipped in among you, and, and I don't want you slipping back into a place of, of the law. And he says that to them. He says, you, you've started out really strong, and, and, I don't, and, and, and as I was playing Larry, I was, I was thinking about this, this passage, and, and, and that's what happened to me. I started out strong, play, playing pickleball, loving it, because he, he begins this chapter by saying, rejoice, <laughs> rejoice in the Lord. Don't let these people who are slipping in among you get that thing, get that joy away from you by having you slip back into a place of you feeling like you have to keep the law. And that's what happened. I started out strong and I was full of joy and I was enjoying pickleball and I made one mistake and I started getting hard on myself. I started feeling like a failure and feeling like I needed to try harder, strive more. And the more I tried, the more I strived, the more mistakes I made. And I was so frustrated and I felt like such a failure. And it was Larry coming up to me saying, Rhea, relax, have fun, be confident in what's in you. You know how to play this game, Rhea. Be confident in it. That's what Paul was saying. 
We studied on Friday morning in our Friday morning session. We're studying about Jesus and how he, he went to the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And the Bible says that the, the spirit led him into that temptation. And, and then it ends and after 40 days that he came out of the wilderness filled, armed, the word says, with the Holy Spirit. The commentators we read said that Jesus' ministry was so successful because he learned to walk and the Spirit, being led by, under the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, that's what happens in our Christian walk. We are saved by, by grace through faith and not by works. The law, we've been delivered. Jesus came to fulfill the law. He fulfilled it. And, but, but we are saved not by the law, not by keeping that law. We can't keep that law. We're saved by grace. But the same grace that saved us empowers us now to walk it out. That power is in us. It's not by us keeping some laws and regulations. It's by us submitting to the Spirit, just like Jesus did, and being led by and controlled by the Spirit. Paul said, I don't want you to slip back into that striving and that feeling like you're a failure and you're making one mistake after another because you will if you keep the law. And so he's saying, relax. He's Larry. Relax. Be confident in what's in you. The Holy Spirit, the same power that raised Christ from the dead, lives within you, empowering you and equipping you to say no to ungodliness, Scripture says, and to walk in obedience to the Lord. Paul said, don't lose sight of that. He says, I have all these reasons for me to, to be proud. <laughs> Look at it. It says in verse... Um, um, he says, if anyone has confidence in the flesh, it's me. And then he lists all of these reasons why he could be confident in what he was doing and how he was living. And he says, but I consider all those things rubbish for one thing, to know Christ. I, he says, I just want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. I want to gain Christ. I want to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. I want being conformed to his death. He says, all I want to do is I want to know Christ. And he said, I don't want you to lose sight of this because all these people are slipping in among your ranks and I don't want you to slip back into striving. I don't want you to slip back into that place where, 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 where you lose the joy of your salvation. And he said, this is how you do it. To know Christ. I want to know him. You, you don't get to know somebody you don't spend time with. The more I, I spend time with somebody, the, the more I get to know them. I, I, I learn what makes their heart beat, what, what, what brings them joy, what, 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 what they're thinking and how they're acting. I learn by, by knowing them. That word know is, is a picture of intimacy. It's a picture of intimate connection with him. Paul says, I want to know Jesus. I, I wonder if you want to know Jesus. He says, I, I'm trying to lay hold. I haven't already attained this. He said, I'm trying to lay hold of that which Christ has laid hold of for me. And he says, and the thing I need to do is I need to forget what's behind. And I need to press forward to the goal that's set before me. That's what happened to me yesterday. I made one mistake and all I could do was focus on the one mistake I made. And that caused me to make one more and one more and one more. It just kept compiling. And Paul says, forget what lies behind. Larry said, let it go, Rhea. Just focus on what's in you. You know this game. 
He said, I'm, I'm, I'm letting go. I'm forgetting what lies behind. I'm pressing forward to the goal that's set before me. The upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And he said, therefore, as many of us as are mature, <laughs> let us have this mind. And then he says, join in following my example and note those who, who walk in a way uh, as we do because you have a pattern in us. I want to read it to you in the NLT. It says, dear brothers and sisters, pattern your, life, your lives after mine and learn from those who follow our example. For I have told you often before, and I say it again with tears in my eyes, that there are many. If you underline in your Bible, underline that word many. There's not just a few. There are many whose conduct shows that they are really enemies of the cross of Christ. They are headed for destruction. Their God is their appetite. They brag about shameful things, and they think only about this life here on earth. He says, "Be uh, join others in following my example. Some of your translations might say, be followers together. It means be a fellow imitator of, of me, he's saying. Uh, be imitators together. What One of the... Um, the Bible dictionaries I read says, be a fellow votary. I said, Dave, what is a votary? I, I looked it up in the dictionary, and it means um, a person who has made a promise to serve a particular religion or God, a person who strongly supports a particular cause or a person, a devoted follower, adherent, or advocate of someone or something, a person who has made vows of dedication to religious service. Paul is saying, because you've made a vow to God, because you've given him your life and you have committed to be a follower of his, now live an example like I am living before you. In this passage, Paul is addressing a problem in the church of, the, of Philippi. People who are professing faith in Christ, but not living like it. People whose conduct was an open scandal to the gospel. People who said they were followers of Christ, but by their behavior, oh, let me tell you, by their behavior, showing themselves to be enemies of the cross. People who profess Christ, but their life didn't show it. Paul often called people to imitate him. And by doing so, he wasn't being egotistical. He knew that he was aiming, the Bible says, to aim for perfection. Some of you who, who don't like the idea of works, you will say, well, Rhea, that's a works mentality. You just said you're saved by, by grace. Yes, the same grace that saved you enables you, empowers you to walk out obedience to the word of God. Paul says, aim for perfection. I haven't acquired it, he said, but I am aiming for it. I'm aiming for it. So we see in verses 12 through 14, he says he, he hasn't arrived yet, but he is setting an example for them that they should be able to follow. In 1 Corinthians 4, 16, he says, I urge and implore you to be imitators of me. In 1 Corinthians 11:1, 1, he says, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. In, in Ephesians 5, 1, he says, be imitators of God as dearly loved children. The J.B. Phillips says, as children copy their fathers, you as God's children are to copy him. He said, be an imitator of me. That word be means to become, to bring into existence. And you do that by imitating, by mimicking. That word is mimic. <laughs> 
The Greek word is similar to where we get our word mime. And, And you know that mimes don't use words. They use actions. And so Paul was saying, I really don't care what you're professing. I don't care what's coming out of your mouth. I want to see it in your actions. Mimic, mime, be a mime, mimic me. So he's emphasizing the importance of actions because actions speak louder than words. My mama used to say to me, Rhea, I would rather see a sermon than hear one any day. Because our actions, they speak louder than our words. We can confess and profess something all we want. But, but I can stand up here tonight and say to you, I'm standing on, on two feet. But what are you going to believe? You're going to believe what you see. I'm standing on one. I can tell you I'm standing on two all I want. But you are going to believe what you see. Paul is exhorting the Philippians, to follow his example, to follow his pattern that he's setting for them. It's in the present imperative. That means it's a command. It's not a suggestion. The present tense means to make it your continuous, ongoing habit to follow his example. Make it your lifestyle, he's saying, to follow my example. My mother used to tell me that, she'd say, Rhea, you're the only Bible that some people are ever going to read. So be very careful how you're living. Paul said to Timothy, set an example for the believers. That always rocks my world. He didn't say set an example. See, I understand that we're supposed to set examples for unbelievers. But what saddens me is that as believers, Paul is saying we need examples set for us. Paul says to Timothy, set an example for the believers in life, in love, in speech, in faith, and impurity. In those five areas, Paul was exhorting Timothy to set an example for the believers. Paul wants his life not to be admired, but to be imitated. Are we living a life that that someone, that we would want somebody to imitate? Philippians 4, 9, he says, the things which you have learned and received and heard and saw in me these do, and the God of peace will be with you. First um, John 2, 6 says, Whoever says he lives in Christ, that is, whoever says he has accepted him as God and Savior, ought as a moral obligation to walk and conduct himself just as he walked and conducted himself. I, this is scripture I'm reading to you. This is not Rhea. This is, I'm telling you what scripture says. 1 Peter 2.21 says, To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. So going back to our scripture, Paul says, Brethren, join in following my examples. And then he adds, And note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. That word note means to observe. It's where we get our word scope for microscope. Uh, It it means uh, to spy out, to look at in depth, to observe, to contemplate, to mark. It implies a a mental consideration and conveys the idea of attentively fixing your eyes and your attention upon something. To contemplate, to examine it in depth. He's saying, look at the lives of the people around you. Examine them. Put a microscope on their life. And see if they're following my example. 
He's telling us to be careful who we're associating with. Because I'm just going to tell you, I would say to my kids all the time, bad company corrupts good character. And, and I think that they, you know, I would say, guys, you think you're going to pull them up higher with you, but they are going to pull you down lower with them. Paul is saying, follow my example. There's a lot of examples contending for your um, focus, for your consideration. And he's saying, follow my example. That's Larry playing pickleball. I, he set an example for me, and I watched him. I, I put him under a microscope. I've watched him every time he plays. I learn watching him. He's setting a good example. He, he doesn't get frustrated with himself. He just, he just sets a good example, and I'm learning watching him. Paul says, you can learn watching me. Just watch me. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. It's in the present tense. It means... Um, keep your eye, keep your eye on people. It means the, dis the continual need to watch out for those who cause dissension and division in any way and to turn away from them. To not let them have a voice in your life. Paul is commanding the Philippians to be attentive to, to keep fixing their attention on those who walk in a godly manner. Make it your habit to scope out godly examples. He says, note those who so walk because you have us as a pattern. That word walk means to make progress. Can I tell you that the people around you should be making progress. I should be making spiritual progress. I should look different next year than I looked this year. I should look a little more like Jesus because I'm following his example. I'm following him and I should be making progress. Peripateo, Leah. Uh, that, that's what that word is there, to make progress. He says, mark those who walk this way, for you have us as a pattern. That word pattern is an example to be imitated. It's of men worthy of imitation. My mom was a seamstress, and she was a master. I, I remember as a little girl, she made Barbie clothing for me. She made all my school clothing. She could make window treatments that would just rock your world. And, but, you know, I, I, I just thought she was amazing. And then she taught me how to sew. And I realized it was easy because she just had a pattern to follow. And, and the pattern, McCall's simplicity, she, she would put that, pin that onto her material, and it would say, cut here, pin here, put a dart here. This is, the, this is where, you, where, where you put the seam. It was easy because she was following a pattern, and she could make a beautiful thing from it. Paul says, follow my pattern. I've set a pattern for you to follow. J.B. Phillips' translation, I, I loved it. It says, let me be your example here, my brothers, and let my example be the standard by which you can tell who are the genuine Christians among those about you. You say, well, Rhea, what happened to this grace thing? <laughs> we're not talking about justification here. We're, we're talking about sanctification. When you, when you are saved by faith, by, faith, uh, by grace through faith, that, that's justification. You can't earn that. You can't be good enough for that. You can't pay your way into heaven. It is a gift of God. He offers you grace. He graces you. That's justification. Now, when God looks at you, it's just as if you've never sinned. When he looks at you, he sees the blood of Jesus shed for your behalf. He sees the, the price that Christ paid on the cross of Calvary for your sins and mine. 
But there's something completely different between justification and sanctification. This is sanctification that we're talking about here. It's not a, a matter of getting into heaven now. It, it's a matter of living your life in a manner that, that counts here. You, you see, the, the, the scripture says that, that we need to be found in Christ. To be found in Christ is salvation truth. But to have Christ found in us is sanctification truth. To be found in him means that when God looks at me, he sees Christ. To have Christ found in me means that when others look at me, they see Christ. To be found in Christ is an unassailable position. It's a given. If you're saved by grace, nothing can blow that, nothing can interfere with that. But the sanctification truth is you want people to, to find Christ in you, to see Christ in you. You say, well, Rhea, I know a lot of Christians who, who don't behave like they're Christians. I know a lot of unbelievers who actually are nicer. I, I found this illustration from Dr. R.A. Torrey. Dr. Torrey was talking with a man about the need for him to be regenerated, to be born again. The man raised an objection. He said, I know some people who make no pretense of being Christians but live fine, upright lives. They're kind and generous and exemplary. I also know people who say they are Christians but live less exemplary lives. Dr. Torrey replied, it's all a matter of what state you're in. And then he drew two rectangles, so picture them up here tonight, two rectangles in the dust on the floor. And pointing to one said, this rectangle represents the state of regeneracy. So let's liken that to the state of Colorado. He said, in the state of Colorado, one man might live up here at the top at 14,000 feet on Pikes Peak. Another man might live down here, still in Colorado, at sea level. And then there might be another man working thousands of feet below uh, the ground, below the surface, in a mine. All three men are in the state of Colorado. And that's the state of, uh, that can be the state of regeneracy. But the same thing happens with unregeneracy, people who don't know Christ. One person might live high on the mountain of morality, and another person might live a very ordinary kind of life. And yet another might live in the darkness and dirt of a vile and wicked life. But they're all in a state of unregeneracy. We are born in that state. You get out of that state of unregeneracy and into a state of regeneracy by being born again. So in the state of regeneracy, because you know Jesus, you could be way up high, super spiritual, working, just, just aiming for perfection, trying very hard to live in obedience to God. Or you might be on that sea level where you're just, you're saved by grace, you love being saved by grace, and that's enough for you. Or you might actually be underground just barely tweaking by, maybe a black backslidden carnal Christian but you're still in a state of regeneracy. You still have been born again. And you might look at somebody who's unregenerate, the world might look at somebody who's unregenerate living on Pikes Peak and at least, uh, you know, a little moral even though they're without Christ and they might say, well, that's a better person than the one who's the regenerate working in the mind. You see? He's still... Even those who, uh, the outward life might compare favorably with the life of a man living on the mountains of morality in the state of unregeneracy. 
but one man is a state of regeneracy and the other is not. The moral man living in the state of unregeneracy is devoid of spiritual life and is lost no matter how moral he is. The backslider living in the state of regeneracy has spiritual life even though for the time being it is not at all evident and he will be saved in spite of his poor showing as a Christian. It all depends on what state you are in. If you're not born again, you can be. You can pass from the state of unregeneracy to regeneracy, but, but to be found in him is salvation truth. For him to be found in you is sanctification truth. To be found in him means when God looks at me, he sees Christ. To be to have him found in me means that when Christ looks at when God when others look at me, they see Christ. Do you see the difference? So he goes on to say, verses 18 and 19, For many walk, of whom I've told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Many, he says, are enemies of the cross of Christ. The, the cross is a symbol of self-denial. I'm working right now on the Good Friday message, which if you haven't a place to go on Good Friday, please come to Grace. I, I've worked really hard on this message, and I'm very excited about it. But, but I'm studying the, this, the message for Good Friday, and, and I was reading about Simon of Cyrene. You know the gentleman who came to carry Jesus' cross. They said, you carry his cross. Are you familiar with that passage? So Jesus was beaten, he, he was scourged, he could bear, he was barely alive, and he was carrying his cross. And, and commentators say that the, the scourging is so painful, is so brutal, that, that, that organs could be spilling out of his body, like intestines could be spilling out of his body. That's how badly beaten he, he was. And he's carrying this cross, it's a hundred pound cross, and, and he's lugging it through the streets because they took the longest way possible through the streets because they were trying to send a message to the people, that they wanted them to fear uh, the Roman government. What they were saying is, you do anything wrong, this will be you. And so they paraded him through the streets, and, and, and Jesus is lugging this cross, and, and he can't carry it anymore. And so the, the, the Roman soldiers grab this man, and they say, you carry his cross. And they, 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 he was not about to, ar to argue with the Roman soldier. People lived in fear of them. But what I learned about Simon of Cyrene this week is that he came from, from a place in Africa, from Cyrene, and it would have been 1,200 miles away. He was coming for Passover. And he would have had to come, not in cars, not on a train, not on an airplane. He would have had to come by foot. And he had to, to, to plan. It would probably have taken, they said, 32-plus days to get there. Remember, he can't travel on the Sabbath. If he traveled eight hours a day, uh, you know, they have it all figured out. Would have taken 32-plus days for him to get there. He's excited. He's coming into town to celebrate Passover. <laughs> Passover happened how many times a year? Once a year. <laughs> what took place at Passover? Sacrifice took place at, 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 at Passover. And so Simon of Cyrene has come all of those miles, left his family, probably his wife, and came to celebrate Passover. 
He's got a, the same 32 days going back. And, and he, he's probably, commentators said he was coming out of the country into the city and he was passing by. He just got into town 32 days. Can you imagine how excited he was? And then all of a sudden, a Roman soldier looks at him and says, you carry his cross. Now, what would the cross have been full of? Blood, spit, body parts. What do we know about the cleanliness um, standards in the Bible? Mosaic law would have said what? He touched blood, he was what? Unclean. He would have had to fulfill all of these religious requirements, which would have taken much more, lo much more longer. How's that for proper English? Much longer than, than what, what he was, uh, the, the time he had before Passover. So now that meant I have I've come 32 days to come to, to celebrate Passover. That happens one time a year that's going to take care of my sacrifices. So now I'm going to live in fear for the next year. Man, are you so glad you're saved by grace that you're not under law? But now I'm going to live for, in fear for the next year, and a Roman soldier makes me carry this cross. And the Bible says that he carried it behind Jesus. That means the whole time he's lugging that cross, the whole time he's thinking, I can't believe I'm not going to get to celebrate Passover. I can't believe I have to do this. I can't believe I have, where'd my family go? They, they said he had two boys. The two boys were probably with him. What, what happened to them? He's lugging them and he's looking at a bloody Jesus in front of him who was led like a sheep to the slaughter. He did not retaliate. He didn't talk back. He didn't grumble. He didn't complain. There was no, no sin on his lips, and he's going quietly to the cross. Enemies of the cross. I've been thinking all week, what was Simon thinking as he followed Jesus, carrying that cross with all of that in his mind? What was he thinking? He's seeing Jesus, who had every right to retaliate, who could have called a, a legion of angels to come and rescue him, who had every right. He was without sin. He was innocent, and he was being led to his slaughter. The cross is a place of self-denial. The cross is a, a, a place of death. Spurgeon says, no man who is the friend of the cross of Christ will give license to his passions or indulgence or his appetites. If he does so, he proves that he is an enemy to the cross of Christ. I was thinking about Simon following Jesus. I was thinking about the time that, that, that the Lord has called me to pick up my cross, to come to a place of dying, to a place of denying self, to a place of, Lord, that's not fair, that's not right. <laughs> I've been asking the Lord about that this week. Lightfoot says, enemies of the cross make use of his name, but do not follow his example. And Paul says, many walk as enemies of the cross. They're opposed to the, way, to, the, the, to the ways of God. Jesus himself did nothing except what the Father told him to do. He, he said, he went to the cross and, and he was in the garden praying and he said, Lord, if there's any way you could take this cross from me, nonetheless, not my will but yours be done. I'll submit, I'll surrender to this cross because I know it's what you want for me. I know it's your will. 
I think of the number of times where God asked me to, to sacrifice, God asked me to die to something, God asked me to, to give up something, give up my rights, and, and how I grumble and complain, and yet Jesus, not my will, but yours be done, Lord. 1 Corinthians 1.18 says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The message of the cross is avoid it because it appears to be foolishness. But it is really the power of God. Enemies of the cross, one commentator says, seek to avoid the suffering that might come their way as a result of following the will of God for their life. There are just some things that, that, are, that feel like foolishness to me in the word of God. To die, we live. To, to, to um, what is it, humble yourself, you'll be exalted. There's, there's so, many, uh, so many phrases in the word of God that I look at and say, really, Lord, that's the way to life. To die is the way to live, really? That's foolishness. And the scripture says that the message of the cross, dying to live, is foolishness. It's foolishness. It seems like foolishness. When you say, I need to forgive that person, Lord, really? That's foolishness. Do you know what they've done to me? you know what they've said to me? Yeah, and I'm calling you to come to a place of dying, taking up your cross and following me. Jesus gave himself to the cross and surrender, believing he would be resurrected. I want you to think about it. Jesus submitted to the Father's will, not knowing what was coming. He had to believe that there would be resurrection. He wasn't laying in that tomb those three days saying, hmm, I wonder when it's coming. I wonder if he'll really be resurrected again. He, he gave himself to the cross, believing he would be resurrected. Paul Halloway says, one becomes an enemy of the cross when one rejects the proposition that those who seek to know Christ must suffer as he did. And that is his, his, is his cross to be enthusiastically embraced as leading to know Christ. The cross is the yes to God no matter what. The cross is an invitation for obedience. You say, well, Rhea, I don't believe that obedience stuff. Turn over to John 15, verses 13 through 14. John 15, verses 13 through 14. This is, um, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friend, Jesus says, if you do whatever I command you. You are my friend, if you do whatever I I command you. The cross is an invitation for obedience. So he says that they're, they're enemies of the cross, and then he gives us the marks of an enemy of the cross. The first one, he says, their God is their belly. Their God is their belly. So here's the first thing you notice about someone who is an enemy of the cross. Their God is their belly. They make decisions based on what they want, they, not on what God says, on what they want. We do this at the expense of, the, I'll tell you, I see this in counseling all the time. Here's the big one. I don't love her anymore. She doesn't make me happy anymore. They want what they want, even at the expense of a marriage, even at the expense of a child, even at the expense of a reputation. Their God is their belly. What calls the shots in this person's life is their appetites, their wants, and their desires. It's a picture of self-indulgence. Professing people who never learn to restrain their appetites, their desires, and their cravings. 
their God they worship and bow down to is their natural worldly desires. It's all about what they're craving, what they want. Their God is their belly. They're driven and controlled by natural worldly appetites, not spiritual eternal appetites. They're seeking comfort and pleasure and to fulfill their desires. And the cross should interrupt what they're hungering for. Uh, we, we, we see this. Uh, um, oh, let's just go on to the next one. Whose glory is their shame. For, let's go back to their God as their belly. Stephen Cole writes that they live for selfish and sensual pleasures rather than denying self in order to live for Christ. So the next one is their glory is their, in their shame. Glory is what someone delights in. And so in this case, an enemy of the cross, their glory is in their shame. They boast in what they should be ashamed of. They're proud of what they should be ashamed of doing. I, I see this even in our culture today. They, they boast in what they should be ashamed of. It's their glory. That word glory there means uh, opinion or praise. What they want praise for is what really should be bringing them shame. Then he says, and their mind is set on earthly things. They're living only for the present. They, they don't have any concern about heaven or hell. They don't even think about it. They're, they're, they're setting their minds on things below and not on things above. They're focused on the here and now, uh, again, on their comfort, their plans, their wants, and their desires. Paul says, you make yourself an enemy of the cross when you're not mindful of the things above. Instead, you're focused on earthly things. We see this with Peter. He's, he's, Jesus is telling him, I have to go to the cross. There isn't another way. And, and Peter tries to talk him out of it. And, and Jesus says this. What's Jesus' reply? Get, the, get behind me, Satan, for you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. Another translation says you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter did it because the cross made no sense to him. Sometimes the cross doesn't make sense to me. Sometimes I say to the Lord, really? There has to be another way. Go back to verse 19. Paul says their end will be their destruction. He's describing this person whose God is their belly, whose mind is set on things, on earthly things, who, who, who's... who's um, Oh, what's the other one? Who, who is, whose glory is in their shame. And he's saying this person, their end will be their destruction. That word destruction there, it, it means perdition. It's, it means the destruction which consists of eternal misery in hell. He said their end is, is going to be their destruction. So he's saying, what Paul is saying is, there are enemies of the cross out there. Watch how you're living. Watch whose example you're following in life. Follow my example because I am following Christ. Watch who you're rubbing shoulders with. Watch who you're intimate with. Watch who you're walking closely with. Because there are people out there who are enemies of the cross. He said, put them under a microscope and examine it. And then he reminds them, your citizenship is in heaven. Davis from England, and uh, he lived here in the United States for a long time before he became a citizen of the United States. And I think, what, 1995 you became a citizen? 96 he became a citizen. And um, but, but, you know, you could tell, if you talk to Dave today, you, you could tell he's a citizen of another country, but way back then you could really tell. He didn't talk like the people here. He didn't dress like the people here. He, he, he just lived a whole completely different life. 
He didn't use the same vocabulary. Instead of going to the bathroom, he'd go to the loo. Instead of opening the trunk, he'd open the bonnet. I mean, there, there were lots of differences in his life. People could tell just by looking at him, especially when he opened his mouth, that he was different. But then he became a citizen of the United States of America. And everything that belonged to natural-born citizens now belongs to Dave because he became a citizen of this country. So the laws of England no longer apply to Dave. So if he decides one day to drive on the left side of the road instead of the right, is that right? And he gets pulled over by the authorities he really doesn't have an argument to say, well, you know what? I used to be a citizen of England. The authorities will say, too bad. That's what I want to do to God sometimes. I want to say, God, I, are you just, are you? <laughs> oh, that's his mom just said she did. <laughs> but sometimes I want to say to God, you know what? That old man, he likes to surface uh, every now and then. <laughs> he really likes to have his way now and then. And I want to say, Lord, certainly you understand. <laughs> and he'll say, Rhea, your citizenship is in heaven. That old man no longer lives, but Christ lives in you. And the life you now live, you live by faith in the one who saved you and set you free. So back to Larry. I marveled that the more frustrated I got, the more mistakes I made. The harder I tried to strive, <laughs> the more mistakes I made. Rhea, relax. Play like you're confident. You've been saved by grace, through faith, not by works. But when you got saved, the Holy Spirit came and took up residency within you. And now the same power that raised Christ from the dead is in you. You don't have to strive and obey all these laws because you can't. But now the Holy Spirit's living within you to enable and empower you to walk in obedience to God's word. And the more you try to do it in your own strength, the more you try harder to strive, you'll just make one mistake after another, and you'll be where I was with pickleball, feeling defeated and like a failure, and like everybody's looking at you like you're such a loser. But here's the good news. Relax. Be confident in the power of God living within you. That will enable you to play well to defeat the enemy, and to win every last time. It's no longer you who live, but Christ lives within you. So, Father, I just pray for every man and woman here tonight. I pray specifically for those who have never encountered your grace who've never heard you say, relax, I got this. We're not going to lose. Oh, Lord God, make yourself real to them tonight. Let them hear, cease striving, and know that I'm God. Empower and equip them in a new way, Lord God. Let them encounter your presence like they never have before. And Lord, for those who started out strong, like I did in pickleball, 
and then got into striving and contending on their own. I pray, Lord God, that you would remind them of the joy of their salvation and the beauty of the Christ living within them. And Lord, for those who are sitting here tonight feeling like a failure, like they'll never do anything right, like everybody knows they're a fake, who have made one mistake after another, Lord, I thank you for the gift of grace. And I pray that you'd overwhelm them. Overwhelm them, Lord, with a sense of your presence. And let them encounter the beauty of all that you are. Show them, Lord, like Larry, that you're on their team and that you never lose a game. Bless them, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We are so glad that you're here tonight.